0: Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We continue in our sermon series from what we call Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, tongues then and now. My eyes were bigger than the saucers that go beneath a jumbo cup of coffee. I mean, how's a little guy supposed to take it all in? I was, it was finally here. The circus had come to town. In school, they gave us free tickets. Of course, they were counting on you bring paying parents along with you when you turned in your free ticket. And it had been marketed as, you know what it was, the greatest show on earth. It wasn't a one ring or a two ring circus. It was a three ring circus. The ringmaster would come out and announce, in the center ring, in the first ring, in the third ring. I mean, it was all happening at the same time. In the center ring, you had the hair-raising human cannonballs being shot out like rockets being launched from the pad. And if they missed the net, splat, it's over. To the left of the center ring was the three Espana brothers in the steel of death. They were on motorcycles and they go round and round 360, and one started, then the second one joined, then the third brother, and they were going round and round. I would have been as drunk as a skunk. And how do they not run into each other at 70 miles an hour? The Espana brothers in the center ring. Finally, in the third ring, there was the mighty Hercules. He was taking three-quarter-inch steel rods and bending them as if they were a water hose. He could actually, I watched him lift three-fourths of a ton, 1,700 pounds, and to top it all off, they drove a Jeep over his midsection. I must have looked like a tennis match spectator looking back and forth between ring one and ring two and the center ring. It was all I could take in. The motorcycles were going round and round. The strong man was bending the bar and the cannon was about to shoot. Now I know what my mother meant when she said, my brother and I were wrestling. This is like this household is, is more chaotic than a three ring circus. All happening under the big tent. The Cathedral of the Clowns. Well, wait a minute. I I remember another time I went to a three-ring circus, except for this time it wasn't the Cathedral of the Crowns. It was the Cathedral of Christ. It was supposed to be a church. Quite frankly, we kind of went as spectators. Maybe there's some shame on us, but I was in seminary and and wanted to expose myself to all different kinds of Baptists and all different styles of Baptist worship. And there was a charismatic Baptist church in Fort Worth that was beginning to draw the crowds. It was different, and they emphasized the gifts of the Spirit like those gifts here in 1 Corinthians 14. So another fellow seminarian and his wife and his two sons went with us as we sat in this charismatic Baptist church. Now, strangely, there was no, strange to me, there was no printed order of service. That's okay, I thought. Someone has an order in mind. When we do a funeral, you don't have an order of service, but I have it, and Dan has it, and the instrumentalists have it, and there is an order, it's just not printed. So I thought, there'll be an order to the service. It began with a familiar flair, but it wasn't long until the three-ring circus broke out. The family we were visiting, had two small boys, and it was interesting to watch their reactions. One was scared to death at what was going on. The other had the giggles, and I was somewhere in between. I was sometimes scared to death, and sometimes I had the giggles as well. It was a church, and we tried to hush him so he wouldn't laugh, but it was hard to, to get him not to. We were singing a particular hymn, and a lady got the holy leaps. I'd never seen a lady get the holy leaps. She took off her shoes and she did ballerina leaps about four feet at a time. She went down the center aisle, went across the front, up the side aisle, back around and around. She went, boy, did I watch that gal go with the holy leaps. I was astonished and one was scared to death and the other was giggling and we tried to find the middle ground there. If it was attention she was wanting, she was certainly getting it. We had never seen anything like that before. And about the time that the lady with the holy leaves was wearing a thin spot in the carpets, some others joined her. Some were just walking in circles and clapping, and some were doing their own type of dance, and the pastor slayed too in the spirit, and, well, you get it, convulsing and rolling and jumping and leaping and dancing and shouting, I thought to myself. This is better than the circus I went to as a kid. I was captivated. Well, they didn't get out the snakes. There was some disappointment there. The, the, kid, the kid scared didn't want to see the snakes, but the kid laughing and I wanted to see the snakes. And if it had been a church where I come from, the Carolinas, they'd have gotten out the snakes. But there were, no, there were no snakes. It was Fort Worth. Is this the way church is supposed to be? Like a three-ring circus... This one preaching a sermon here. That one doing a dance over there. A third one rolling in the floor over here. Not according to Apostle Paul. Look at 1 Corinthians 14. I want you to look at verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion. Hannah prayed that so beautifully. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints. But look at verse 40 but let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. The church at Corinth, quite frankly, was running a three-ring circus in worship. And Paul tells them, and our text this morning, stop it. It was a circus that was infiltrated with the gift of the spirit of glossolalia or Holy Ghost language. When I was growing up in high school, I had Pentecostal friends in the Carolinas, and around middle school or high school, those students would begin to be asked, do you have the gift yet? They would be asking church, do you have the gift yet? In fact, they asked me, do you have the gift? And I didn't know who was supposed to give me a gift and what gift I was missing, but do you have the gift yet? No, no, they said, we mean the gift of speaking in tongues for in their church to have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life you had to manifest that presence by the gift of speaking in tongues if you did not speak in tongues their wayward theology said you did not have the Holy Spirit that's what the Pentecostals in my community were teaching so really in their church there were two levels of Christianity there was a bottom shelf, those who had received Christ but had not received the Holy Spirit as made evidence by speaking in tongues. And then there were those who spoke in tongues who were of the highest order. Do you have the gift yet? Your granddaddy had the gift. Your daddy had the gift. Do you have the gift yet? You ask a young man enough times or a young lady, do you have the gift yet? They eventually find the gift. Have you heard of this kind of theology? It's very foreign to what Paul is saying to the city of Corinth. I want to give you some things that we learn about glossolalia or the Holy Ghost language found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First of all, speaking in tongues is described in 1 Corinthians as a spontaneous, unlearned form of communication to God made in the Spirit. Speaking in tongues is described in 1 Corinthians as a spontaneous, unlearned form of communication to God made in the Spirit. Now, it's not like the Acts of the Apostles. You remember at Pentecost when Peter and the Apostles stand up in the early chapter of Acts and they begin preaching. We have a miracle of hearing and everyone hears the message of the gospel in his or her own language. That's not what's happening here in 1 Corinthians 14. In in Acts, it is a known language. But in 1 Corinthians 14, it's not Spanish, it's not Japanese, it's not German. You can't get an alphabet, the glossolalia, for the language you're speaking. You can't tell the difference between a noun uh, form and a verbal form. Well, unless, of course, you have the gift of interpretation, is a spontaneous, unknown language. So I realize here in this passage that it does exist. I believe it existed then. I believe it exists today. The gift of speaking in tongues. Second thing, the gift of tongues is a gift that is supposed to be used primarily for personal edification. It is a prayer language. It is to be used primarily for personal edification. It is a prayer language. Look at verse 2 of chapter 14. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Notice the sense of prayer here. When you're speaking in tongues, it's a prayer to God. It's not teaching humanity. For no one understands, but in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. There it is. Paul says to them in the midst of their confusion of all the glossolalia that's interrupting the worship, when you speak in the unknown tongue, the, the language of the Holy Spirit, you are building yourself up. You are not building up the church. It is a speech not to your fellow brethren and sisters, but rather it is a speech to God. It is a prayer life. It is a prayer language, and it does not edify the church like prophecy does. So says the apostle Paul. So speaking in tongues is a benefit, but it's a benefit to the individual who has the gift, not to the others in the place of worship. A third thing I want you to see is this. The one speaking in tongues stays in control. The one speaking in tongues stays in control. Look down at verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue It should be two at the most, three in each one, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. And let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Look at verse 32. And the spirit of prophet is subject to the prophet. If the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. I had a pastor friend... When well, lay in his church, she was beginning to cause confusion in worship. She was changing the church's worship style by her own personal preferences. And, well, it was becoming like a circus. Her gift in the spirit was loud, it was really loud. She would sit close to the front and she would get out in the aisle and the whole time the preacher was trying to preach, she was talking back to him really loudly and when the soloist would get up to sing, she would be louder than soloist. Uh, soloist couldn't remember the words or the notes because of all the confusion and well, he called her into his office and he said to her, I know you have the very best of intentions, but you're gonna have to tone it down just a bit you're causing distractions and confusion in our worship. And she told the pastor, I'll have to think about that, because I'm not the one doing it, it's the Holy Spirit. I'll have to think about that because I'm not the one doing it, it's the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know how he responded to her, but I would have responded with 1 Corinthians 14:32. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. One can never claim to be out of control and help us over one's emotions or one's words or one's style of worship. Paul says specifically in an exact parallel circumstance that we can control the movement of the Spirit with us to cause order and not chaos in worship. The speaker has control. Here's a fourth thing I would say. Some Christians don't have the gift at all. Some Christians don't have the gift at all. Turn back. Now, remember in 1 Corinthians, turn back to chapter 12, verse 30. In 1 Corinthians, we sort of have this sandwich. He speaks about the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12. And then he gives us that love chapter, which reminds us, whatever your gift might be, you need to think that you're doing it in love. And then he comes back in chapter 14 to specifically address glossolalia or speaking in tongues. So gifts... You all used to edify the church, do it all in love. Chapter 13, we did that last week. And now chapter 14, the idea of glossolalia must not cause confusion in in worship. Well, look at the end of chapter 12. All do not have the gift of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly seek the greater gifts... And let me show you a more excellent way. It doesn't make one inferior if one does not have the gift of glossolalia. Here we're told in 1 Corinthians 12 about a variety of gifts. And notice what he says, all do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But then he says, I want to show you a better way. And the better way is doing everything in the spirit of love. In fact, he gets to the end of chapter 13. Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. Seek the greater thing. The greater thing, he says, is love. To exercise all your gifts in the context of love. There's a fifth thing I'm going to say. Paul says it's not one of the greater gifts. Paul says glossolalia is not one of the greater gifts. He tells them that at the end of chapter 12, I want to show you the greater gifts. And in the greater gifts, he says, faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Turn to chapter 14 again and look at verse 1 where I get this idea from. The greatest gift is love, he says, 14, pursue love. Yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but what gift does he especially want them to seek? The gift of speaking in clear language prophecy. So look at there at chapter 14, verse 1. He begins this whole discussion, chase after love, chapter 13, and yet desire earnestly the gifts of the Spirit, but especially I want you desire to speak with a clear word and a clear language. Speak with a clear word and a clear language. In fact, we are never told in Scripture to manufacture or seek the gift of speaking in tongues. If you have it, you have it. If you don't, you don't. And that's what Paul has to say. Well, a sixth thing he says, clear speech is better. Clear speech is better. Those in Corinth were seeking after the hyped up so-called super spiritual gifts. And if they could put on a show with glossolalia, then they were drawing attention to themselves. And Paul tells them, wait a minute, I'd rather you not have that gift. I'd rather you seek the gift of prophecy. Look at chapter 14, verse 19. However, in the church, now in one's private prayer life, Paul is completely comfortable with glossolalia. However, in the church, verse 19, I think five words with the mind that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in an unknown Holy Ghost language. But the apostle Paul is saying here in verse 19, when it comes to the church, I want you to know that five clear words that instruct others are better than 10,000 words of glossolalia. Now, you do the math, five versus 10,000. Five clear words, he says, is better than 10,000 words of confusion. By the way, look at verse 18. Paul reminds him, he's certainly qualified to speak about glossolalia because he has the gift. Paul says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, he says, I desire clear language. I have the gift, Paul's saying, but I exercise that gift in my private prayer language as I speak to God, but when I speak to others, I use prophecy or clear words and instruction. Now, what is the setting for this whole text? The setting for the whole text, as in the moment, the hour of worship, we should be doing things to edify the church. There's a com- contrast here in chapter 14. Is what you're doing building yourself up, making a show for yourself, or are you building up the church? That's the that's comparison. In fact, if you read through chapter 14, if you were to read through it and circle every time the word edify is used, it would be seven times. The whole chapter is about edifying, building up the church. Look at verse 3. But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. The one who prophesies is building up the church. But the one who speaks in glossolalia, verse 4, edifies himself, verse 4. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. It's again in in verse 5. It's again in verse 12. It's again in verse 14. It's again in verse 17. And look at verse 26 when he sums it up. Unless you missed his seven uses of the word edification, look at the end of verse 26. Let all things be done for edification. Let all things be done for edification. Everything we do in worship ought to build up the church not build up individuals or showcase them and their talents or their gifts, whatever those gifts might be. It's all about building up the church. Now, there are a lot of people from a lot of different traditions in this room. There are people on our staff from very different traditions and I respect and honor those various traditions. But someone might say about our worship service, you know, just one time, I wish we'd do something that wasn't printed on our order of service. Just one time, just one time, I wish we'd do something that wasn't on this man-made order of worship. I want you to think about that for a moment. Are you supposing that the Holy Spirit can't work through Dan or Parker or myself or our staff as a plan for worship? Do you have a theology, the Holy Spirit, that says He can only work in the moment right now do you not see him as powerful enough and wise enough to work months in advance to form a worship that will bring a clear and orderly word to the congregation sermons i'm doing first corinthians so i know where i'm going way down the road this is set right and you, you'd be surprised how many times I preach a message and come, someone comes up and says, you won't believe what I went through this week and how your message is just what I needed to hear today. Did I plan that? No. I just planned to preach through 1 Corinthians. And somehow in the Spirit's providence and divine guiding, there was a divine appointment between the proclamation of that word From me and the listener on the other side, it was orchestrated by the Spirit of God long before invading the planning process. Don't limit the Holy Spirit to chaos. The Holy Spirit is perfectly able to plan ahead, years ahead. Probably knows what I'm preaching five years from now. I don't even want to think about that. But He does, and He knows. Don't confuse A non-printed order with a spirit-led service and a printed order with a non-spirit-led service. If that's your logic, I'd like to debate that topic with you. Number seven, speaking in tongues can be very confusing to unbelievers. Look at verse 23. Speaking in tongues is very confusing to unbelievers. If therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, Will they not say you are mad but if all prophesy an unbeliever and ungifted man enters he will be convicted by all and he will be called into account by it all. What he says is this glossolalia really is a prayer language to God and it may speak to other believers but the lost come in and they see confusion they will say you have gone mad and In fact, it will be a sign of judgment to them, not a sign of grace, he continues in this this chapter. There's an eighth thing I would say about this. Now, this doesn't do the deal for me. There are other things that Jesus doesn't speak about that Paul speaks about that I would embrace. But we do need to acknowledge that Jesus nowhere in the gospel speaks in tongues. He never teaches about it. He just doesn't. And as you read the gospel, you realize that Jesus himself, in no fashion, no way in any time, displayed the gift of glossolalia. Paul did, but Jesus didn't. In fact, it seems to me if this were something so terribly important to the disciples, then Jesus would have talked about the gift of speaking in tongues. He simply never mentions word about him. Pastor, do you believe all the gifts exist today? I certainly do. Do you believe the gift of glossolalia or speaking in tongues exists today? I don't have it, but I believe others do, and I pray God blesses and honors them with it. There's only one gift that I would remove from the list, and we won't go into that. It's the gift of being an apostle. One cannot meet the criteria today for being an apostle, for an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. You can't do that. And after that, I'm not taking anything off the list. By what criteria or by what right would I have to say, well, that's not a gift anymore because I don't have it. Does that make it not a gift or I'm not comfortable with it? Does that make it not a gift? No. I, I'm not even sure anywhere in Scripture we have an exhaustive list of all the spiritual gifts some lists have this, this list of gifts, another lift in Paul, list in Paul has another elements of the gifts of the Spirit. So I would say to you, outside of the gift of being an apostle, which clearly cannot be granted today, the reality is that all the gifts of the New Testament are important, and all of them exist today. So if you have that gift. It's a gift you use and your prayer calls it to speak to God and it brings you closer to him and sometimes known languages fail you in your praise. I'm good with it. I'm, I'm glad you have that gift and I pray that gift edifies you as you worship with God. But the real question this morning is not do you or do you not have a specific gift? The real question in 1 Corinthians 14 is this. Are you using the gifts you have to build up the body? That's the question. Are you using the gifts that you have to build up the body of Christ? You don't have to agree with anything else I've said this morning, and being a Baptist, that's your prerogative, and I'm not even mad. You can see it differently than I see it. I just got to call it like I see it. But the reality is, the one thing we cannot ever disagree about is, whatever your spiritual gift it is to be used to build up the body of Christ, not to draw attention to yourself, not to say, look at me, not to just edify yourself, but rather your spiritual gifts are to be used to edify, to build up the body. Seven times, don't edify yourself, edify the body. Don't edify yourself, edify the body. Over and over and over again. 1 Corinthians twelve seven, the earlier chapter, remember, gifts, love, love. And gifts, especially glossolalia, that's the way 1 Corinthians goes. Chapter 12 is gifts in general, then love, then glossolalia in chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each one is given a gift from the Spirit for their own good? No, for the common good of the church. What gifts do you have? And are you using your gift to build up the body? Let's pray. Oh God, this is a complex passage and we can read it different ways. But one thing we do know is you never ask what's best for me, but rather what's best for us. And how do we not build up ourselves or become a spectacle in worship, but rather, how do we draw attention to the crucified and resurrected Christ and speak a word of clarity and conviction to anyone who walks in this room? Maybe there's someone here today who feels that compelling of the Holy Spirit to come forward and declare Jesus is Lord. Maybe there are others this morning who feel compelled to come and be a, a part of this congregation I pray your spirit will lead and folks will respond. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.